Good morning. It's a pleasure to be with you in such a beautiful chapel and a beautiful day in Toronto. This is my first visit to Toronto, so if you have recommendations for coffee shops and restaurants and bookstores, maybe you can snag me after my talk and tell me where to go in the next couple days. Um, I've already experienced the kindness of Canadians. <laughs> um, you really do live up to your your uh, stereotype in the Midwest, which Canadians are just so nice. So thank you for your, your gracious uh, welcome to me. So as, as Natasha mentioned, the title of my talk today and Thursday is Listening for God's Call for Your Life. And I have to say that if you are here this morning hoping that I will tell you exactly what God wants you to do with your life, you're going to be sorely disappointed. You might as well just leave now uh, because I cannot tell you exactly (laughs) what God wants you to do in your job, in your career, where he wants you to live, who he wants you to marry. But... I can give you some good news if you feel anxiety about what you are supposed to do with your life. What is my calling? What is my vocation? I I want to spend some time this morning and Thursday unpacking some myths about vocation that I think hinder us in our our call to follow Christ, in our uh, peace, a peace that we can find as we follow him. When we talk about vocation, we often use the language of calling, and this makes sense. The the word vocation is from the Latin vocare, which is to call. And as Christians, we understand that calling is something that we receive from the Lord uh, and that we're meant to discern in order to live a life of purpose and meaning. We want to know what God's specific call is for our life. But I think some of the ways that we talk about calling, maybe especially on Christian college campuses, can lead to some unnecessary anxiety for us. Now, if you are anything like me, you experience college to be an incredibly anxious time. (laughs) Uh, You have new pressures to keep up with uh, your, your reading and studying, there's often a major uh, course load that is different and, and harder from high school. A lot of you are away from home for the first time. You're trying to get your bearings socially. You hear from your parents wondering, they're sometimes wondering, so have you picked a major yet? And what do you think you're going to do after you graduate? There can be a pressure to show a return on investment shortly after graduation, right? We, 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 your parents, have put forth the money to allow you to go to college, and we want to see that you are making good on your college education. And then add to all of this, I think on, in Christian college campuses in particular, We learn that we are supposed to change the world upon graduating. What does it mean to change the world? This college is going to produce world changers. But what does it mean to change the world? We have few roadmaps for what that will look like. 
We're supposed to figure out what it means for, for me, for each of you to change the world, but sometimes we have trouble remembering to change the sheets on our beds. So, you know, it's, it's a stressful time and there's a lot to juggle. On top of this, we tend to think of calling as something that it will be one big dramatic thing that we will do for the rest of our lives. Instead of calling being something that evolves over time in response to particular challenges, particular opportunities, particular seasons, we often think of calling as a single static mission statement, something that God has woven into our DNA, and yet he expects us to figure it out with enough personality tests and trips to the career center and and coffee meetings with our uh, academic advisor. I certainly experienced a lot of anxiety around the topic of calling and vocation as a Christian college student. I graduated from Calvin, which is about five hours west of here. Um, I am not Dutch. I quickly learned upon (laughs) uh, being on campus, but I I greatly appreciate the Dutch Reformed tradition that, that Calvin embodies. Now, I studied communications and art history. Um, These were topics that I just learned that I really enjoyed learning learning and studying uh, through Calvin's core curriculum. And somehow I managed to get through four years of undergraduate without really even thinking about a job. (laughs) Don't tell my parents. without thinking about, okay, how is this going to translate into a particular job or career? It didn't hit me until after graduation, the summer after graduation, that I needed to find something to do. Okay, I've gotten this world-class education, but what am I supposed to do with it? And that summer after graduation was one of the most anxious and unsettled times in my life. It was a time of great transition, and I was desperate for direction from the Lord. And so I I remember praying just one of these anxious, desperate, like Hail Mary prayers. Lord, if you just make it really clear to me, I will go be an overseas missionary I will go serve people in an impoverished country, even though this is the last thing that I want to do. And I've never thought about doing overseas missions, but Lord, if you make it clear, I will go be an overseas missionary for you. And God in his graciousness did not answer that prayer. Because this kind of work is... This overseas missions work is probably the kind of work that I am uniquely ill-suited for. But I do think that that prayer about uh, doing overseas missions work, about God making it really clear, what is my one career path? What is my one way of changing the world? That prayer revealed a lot about what I had absorbed over the years about what calling and vocation is. And to be honest, I don't think all of those beliefs and myths around vocation helped me. So I want to spend time today and Thursday naming and countering 
some of the myths that we hold around vocation and, and replacing them with uh, truer and more comprehensive understandings of vocation so that you are freed from some unnecessary anxiety that you might be experiencing about vocation, especially as you think about graduating, leaving campus, and going out into the quote-unquote real world. But before I get to these myths, and you do have to come back on Thursday to hear about all of them, so I will be watching to make sure that all of you come back on Thursday. I, I want to lay what I have come to think of as a foundation of vocation, something that keeps us grounded as we explore different options and different conceptions of vocation. And the, the person who I think has most shaped my understanding of this foundation of vocation is Henry Nouwen. Some of you probably recognize that name or have heard of his books. He was uh, born into a Dutch Catholic family and would go on to become a renowned priest and spiritual writer. He wrote almost 40 books throughout his life until his death in 1996. If you haven't read any of Henry Nouwen, I would recommend uh, Reaching Out or The Return of the Prodigal Son as two classics of his. Nouwen writes of having two voices within himself from an early age. And they were, these voices were from his mother and father, respectively. The first voice from his mother said this, make sure that whatever you are doing, that you stay close to the heart of Jesus. The second voice was from his father, make sure that you are successful and that others approve of you and think highly of you. Nowen would go on to become a renowned scholar of pastoral psychology and Christian spirituality. He had posts at Notre Dame and Yale and Harvard. And so by, by most standards, 20 years into his career, he had reached the pinnacle of success. He had made it from a worldly perspective. He had followed that voice of his father and had made good on it. And yet he writes that 20 years into this highly successful career, he experienced a deep inner threat in his spirit. Something was not well spiritually. He says that his prayers were poor. He was isolated from Christian community. He found himself uh, preoccupied with burning social and political issues of the day, and yet he didn't have the, the spiritual resources or bearings to face them. And so even though he was this great, respected, spiritual leader, and people were inviting him to speak all over the country, he was getting book deals, he said he actually started to experience what felt like hell. And so that second voice make sure that whatever you do, you are successful, had somehow drowned out the first voice. Make sure you stay close to the heart of Jesus. In 1985, uh, while he was teaching at Harvard, Nowen prayed to God for deliverance. He knew that, that things were not well. And in that year, a woman uh, showed up at his doorstep 
and he didn't know her. He thought, oh, she maybe wants me to do something for her ministry or come speak. But the woman just said, greetings in the name of Jean Vanier and the L'Arche community. Some of you may have heard of L'Arche. I'm probably butchering the French, and, and you all would know better than most Americans. L'Arche is an intentional community founded by the Catholic philosopher Jean Vanier. And it it was founded to bring together people with profound developmental and intellectual disabilities and people without those disabilities to live together, to work together, to worship together, to live in mutual dependence and friendship in a a radically countercultural way. And so this woman appears at Nouwen's door and she offers greetings and he says, well, what can I do for you? She says, there's nothing you need to do. We just send our greetings. He thought, okay, that's interesting. This woman would show up three more times at his door, offering greetings from L'Arche. Now, I told you that I can't tell you what God wants you to do with your life, but if a stranger shows up at your door three or four times in a time when you're praying for deliverance, there may be a connection between these two events. And the last time that this this woman from L'Arche visited, uh, Nowen decided to leave Harvard to to move to L'Arche, to live there in intentional community. And this was a move of profound uh, countercultural, it was was a countercultural decision. He was moving from the best and the brightest at Harvard to people who others consider the lowest, the most forgotten, the most marginalized people that we so often forget or, or push aside. And in fact, as I was doing research on Nouwen's life, he, he moved initially to France, which is where the L'Arche movement was founded. But then he also spent a lot of time in the Toronto L'Arche community, which is about 30 minutes from here. Now, when Nouwen moved to L'Arche, he was not known by the people there. He was not Uh, famous when he walked into L'Arche. People didn't know his name. He was stripped of his accolades and made to live in simplicity and obscurity. While there, he was asked to care for a young man named Adam, who had profound uh, intellectual, physical limitations. Adam couldn't walk. He couldn't speak. He really couldn't even respond to another person's presence. And Henry was tasked with caring for Adam, uh, washing him, uh, uh, taking him all to, to different uh, opportunities, different uh, worship activities. He was um, made to live with Adam in such a personal and sometimes uncomfortable way. But in that time, Nowen would say that he discovered his true vocation. That first voice from his mother, stay close to the heart of Jesus, stay close to the heart of Jesus. He could hear that voice again. And what was Nowen's true vocation? Well, I want to suggest that it is our vocation as well. And it is simply this. Our vocation as Christians is to grow into God's love for us, to grow in our understanding of being beloved by God and to share that love with a world starving for this kind of love. 
Our vocation is simply to live ever more deeply into the gospel, into the good news. Here's how Henry put it in his book, In the Name of Jesus. He writes, God loves us not because of what we do or accomplish, but because God has created and redeemed us in love and has chosen us to proclaim that love as the true source of all human life. The desire to be relevant and successful will gradually disappear, and our only desire will be to say with our whole being to our brothers and sisters, you are loved. There is no reason to be afraid. In love, God created your inmost self and knit you together in your mother's womb. Now, this, does, is, this isn't to say that each of us won't also receive specific type of callings, but I think keeping this primary universal Christian calling central is actually wonderfully freeing for us. It frees us from spending so much time and energy and anxiety trying to discern the one career path, the one job, the one ministry opportunity that we are supposed to do. The call to grow deeper into God's love, expressed most powerfully in the person of Christ and his death for us on the cross, and to share that love with others This call can take place anywhere and at any time, whether we're in a corporate office or a coffee shop or among roommates or with neighbors, in the highest offices of power and prestige to the lowest and most forgotten corners of society, we can live out this primary Christian call. There is no time and place that this vocation isn't available to us. Before we can figure out our specific calling, what does it mean for me as a a person, as an individual, to live out this calling, given uh, my personality, given my relationships, given my education? Before we figure out our specific calling, we must attune our ears to hear the voice of the caller. In our discussions around calling, we have forgotten that it is God who calls, and it is God's call upon our life. It's not about us. Sometimes I wonder if our anxious pursuits to figure out our calling are really about wanting a roadmap for life so that we can set out on our own. Like we're saying, thanks God, I got the message, I'm good now, don't need your help. And what the Lord wants at any season, at any point in our life, is a relationship, an ongoing intimate connection where we are constantly drawing closer to him in dependence and trust and love. And if we we find that we can do that by grace and by the power of the Holy Spirit, there is truly no situation, no job, no context where we can't find peace and wholeness and flourishing. This is how Nowen puts it. He says, there is no such thing as the right place, the right job, the right calling. He says, I can be happy or unhappy in all situations. I am sure of it because I have been. I have felt distraught and joyful in situations of abundance as well as poverty. In situations of popularity and anonymity. In situations of success and failure. The difference was never based on the situation itself, but always on my state of mind and heart. 
When I knew I was walking with God, I always felt happy and at peace. And when I was entangled in my own complaints and emotional needs, I always felt restless and divided. Nowin never returned to the academy. He did not go back to Harvard or Yale. He ended his life with an increased desire to live and minister at Larsh, the place where he found his true calling, his true fulfillment. That's, that voice from his mother, stay close to the heart of Jesus, is the voice that he followed the rest of his life. I told you at the beginning that I couldn't tell you what God's call was for your specific life. And that is true. If you come to me afterwards wanting me to tell you what God wants you to do with your life, I probably can't answer that in a specific way. But I actually can tell you what to do as Christians in your daily life. And that is to keep the eyes of your heart focused on God. The next 10, 20, 30 years of your life will bring wonderful opportunities, uh, opportunities to travel, opportunities to work for great companies, uh, opportunities to study abroad. And the next 20, 30 years of your life will probably also bring difficult losses and disappointments and turns in the road where you couldn't expect. But through all of this, whatever happens in the coming years, Fixing your eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, will steady and comfort you through it all. So, we have our foundation of vocation. I want to spend some time talking about uh, one myth. I, I have three myths that I want to impact. I will only have time today to talk about the first. So again, you will have to come back on Thursday to hear about the second and third and I think this, this myth is closely tied to some of the anxiety that I remember experiencing as a college student that, that maybe you are experiencing in this season as well. And that myth is that your vocation is one big thing that you will discover in your 20s and live out for the rest of your life. This assumes a lot about uh, the path of success in America. We think that uh, the pinnacle of our, of our achievement, um, of our opportunity, of our ability will happen probably when we're young, in our 20s or 30s, and it'll stay the same throughout the course of our life. This is the myth of the unchanging vocation, and it is a myth because I, I don't believe that we, we live into vocation in that way. But it is certainly part of what animated my anxious prayer when I was 22 and I was a recent college graduate. I assumed that, okay, age 22 is the time you figure out the one big thing that God is asking you to do, and that will be your job assignment for the next 30 or 40 years. I think part of what animated that, that anxious prayer was I wanted to be secure in knowing I was on the right path. And I assumed that my vocation would find its fullest expression when I was young and when I had a lot of energy and when I was passionate instead of when I was uh, later in life, when I was 50 or 60. Now, it is the case that some of us, uh, some people that I know, do receive one pretty clear vocation that, that stays the same 
more or less throughout the course of their lives. I think of my friend Becca, who um, is about my age. She's been in medical school for a really long time, (laughs) 12 years. And she pretty much knew as soon as she got to college that she wanted to study pre-med and that she wanted to learn to become a surgeon. And she, she had that clarity at age 18, and she's more or less stuck with that clarity, that clear vision uh, through the last 12 years. And it will probably be the path that she stays on for the rest of her life. She is one of the very few people in the world who is sharp enough and dedicated enough and precise enough and compassionate enough to be a surgeon, and she knows it, and it's good that she's on this path. But the vast majority of us are not like Becca. We find that our our understanding of our own calling changes over time in response to particular opportunities and constraints that each season brings. And I think this is the harder truth about vocation because it is harder not to know what the next years of life or even the next year of life will bring. But, but this is the way of faith. This is the path of faith, not knowing what the future holds, but knowing that God is there, uh, sovereign over whatever our life will bring. I believe God in his sovereignty places us in specific familial and economic and cultural and political contexts for particular reasons that are often not known to us in the moment, or maybe we only understand many years later as we're looking back in hindsight. And everyone in this room, I know, I'm sure knows that our life can change abruptly Maybe our workplace is downsizing and it makes several cuts and all of a sudden we don't have a job or our parents don't have a job. Uh, our, Our spouse or our roommate survives an accident and all of a sudden they need constant care and we are the person to provide it. Our church goes through a major leadership transition and many congregants leave and new people come in and it changes the culture of the church and we're not sure where we fit in anymore. Or our friends move away and we are left trying to forge a new social group and make new connections. And when our life changes in this way, as it will at some point for you if it hasn't already yet, we have a chance to respond with fear or with faith. We can respond with faith because the foundation of our vocation, what we discussed already, will stay constant. Our primary vocation is always and everywhere to receive the love of God in Christ and to share that love with our neighbor. And no matter our circumstances or our constraints or the difficulties that we face, this is the core of why we are here on earth. And that cannot be taken away. As our life circumstances change, so the call to love our neighbor as ourselves will take on new dimensions and contours. The call stays the same, but the expression of that call will look different depending on the context. And I'm going to use a musical metaphor. If any of you are trained musicians, you can probably correct me afterwards. But here's how I've come to think of uh, the differences in uh, different frameworks for vocation. I think most of us 
want to be like classical musicians. We want the score for our lives given to us from the beginning so that we know exactly what notes to play and when. And this is how classical musicians prepare to play. They memorize the notes, they memorize the dynamics, they go over it over and over again so that they can play with perfect precision during an audition or a performance. But the life of faith requires that we play more like a jazz soloist. We, we get the beat from the bassist or the drummer, but then we have this opportunity to improvise when our moment comes. If we are attuned to the drummer's lead, if we know our fellow musicians, we are free to play what we feel when the moment comes, to respond in that moment with creativity and love and joy. Now, this does not mean that you don't practice. Jazz musicians will tell you that they have to practice as much as any classical performer. To improvise well, to be a good improviser, a good soloist, you have to know your instrument in and out. You have to understand the relation of different notes and attune your ears to your fellow musicians. And this is true for us as well as we move through the Christian life. To play our notes well, we have to know who wrote the notes. We have to know who designed the instrument. We have to know so well what is expected of us that when our moment comes, we know exactly what notes to play that will make a pleasing sound. And how how do we practice? Well, through the spiritual practices. (laughs) We, We have people who have gone before us living more deeply into Christ, who have told us what it means to grow more deeply into him, into his life. So how do we practice to play the Christian life well? Well, we spend time with the word. We spend time understanding Christian history. We see how others have played well in those forms. We spend time praying alone and with others. We spend time pouring out our our laments and our joys before the Lord as individuals and in community. We belong to a community of other musicians, so to speak, who are also preparing, who are also practicing, who who are also preparing to play with creativity and joy when their moment comes. And that is essentially the local church. I want to end our time this morning by telling the stories of a couple Christians who I think have improvised the Christian life particularly well, even as uh, their lives have changed radically and dramatically. They give us models of what it means to improvise well when our moment comes. The first person I think of is a friend of mine named Christy, who I met several years ago through a project at Christianity Today. And when I met Christy, she was in her late 30s. She had already been an actress, an artist, a musician. She was living in Manhattan at the time. She was working for International Arts Movement, which is uh, Mako Fujimura's organization. She was single, and she thought she would be single the rest of her life, and she was happily so. 
And then as these things go, <laughs> she, she met a man who would become her husband through a friend. They got married very quickly. They moved to Seattle to as far as you can get from Manhattan while still being in the United States. And they set up their life there. And within a matter of months, they met a woman who lived not far from them, who was struggling to care for her young children because of um, addiction issues. This, was, this woman was a friend, someone that Christy knew. And as Christy got to learn more of the situation and the foster care system in Seattle, she and her husband Carl felt called to foster uh, this, this young child whose, whose mother could not care for him in such an important time. Three years later, <laughs> uh, Christy would have three adopted children, um, all siblings. And she still has a, a relationship, a friendship with their mother, their biological mother. And now Christy helps other couples in Seattle navigate the foster care and adoption worlds and, and serve in the way that she and Carl have. So life can change quickly. Her life has changed in five years. And yet as she moved, as she began a new marriage, as she met people in Seattle, what a creative and joyful way to serve your neighbor by participating in, in foster care, by caring for young children. The other example that comes to mind is, I believe, the most powerful public display of Christian witness from recent memory. It happened in Charleston, South Carolina in the spring of 2015. On a regular Wednesday night, a troubled young man with hatred in his heart sat through a Bible study at Mother Emanuel AME Church in downtown Charleston. And then for reasons that are still hard to grasp, he opened fire on the room and he took the lives of nine precious image bearers and worshipers sitting in that Bible study. Two days later, as the nation grieved and was filled with confusion and rage, why did this happen? How could this happen? The family members of the victims that night were allowed to address the young man in a televised hearing. As millions of people from the nation watched what they had to say, these family members spoke words of forgiveness, even as their voices shook with grief and anger. Nadine was the daughter of slain church member Ethel Lance. And this is what she said to this young man. I forgive you. You took something very precious away from me. I will never get to talk to her ever again. But I forgive you and have mercy on your soul. You hurt me. You hurt a lot of people. But if God forgives you, I forgive you. And you hear those words, and you know that Nadine, this woman, was prepared to respond as a Christian in this moment, in a radical, powerful display of the gospel. She was prepared to respond well, even though this is no moment that any of us want to face. She was prepared. She had been practicing. 
She was part of a worshiping community. She probably knew her Bible in and out. She knew what the Bible said about forgiveness. She understood the depths of God's forgiveness for her demonstrated on the cross. Hopefully, none of us will have to face that kind of moment to respond. But all of us will have opportunities in the next 10, 20, 30 years of our lives to respond in the moment with creativity and love and joy and figure out what does it mean for me to grow in my understanding of God's love and to share that love with a world that is dying to understand it and hear it? What will it mean for me? And so to do that, we have to prepare. We have to know the word. We have to know the caller's voice to us. We have to be in regular contact with the caller. We have to be praying. We have to be among people who are seeking him as well. My prayer for, for each of you this morning is that um, you will walk away with a sense of peace about your particular vocation. And like I said, we'll spend more time talking about uh, work, particularly pr- professional work and career. But I think it's really important to have this foundation of vocation uh, before we set out into that. So I want to pray a prayer over you and then we will leave for the rest of our day. Dear Father, thank you for this beautiful day. Thank you for calling us together as a, as a community to uh, learn about you and understand your call upon our lives. Thank you that you are with us and will be with us through whatever life can bring. Thank you for calling us specifically by name to be your beloved and to share and embody that love for the people around us. Give us the grace to respond well when our moment comes, to know what it means to love you deeply and to serve others deeply in that particular moment. May we be freed of anxiety as we look to the years ahead. May we trust you as the author and perfecter of our faith. Fix our eyes, the eyes of our hearts on you, O Lord. And we give everything to you. And it's in your son's name. Amen.